Sometimes life feels like you're in the middle. In the words of that song that we've been singing over the last few weeks, you can't go back to the beginning and you can't sort it all out. You find yourself in the middle of something. And as Lily has so powerfully reminded us, there is a a challenge, I think, to our own hearts to be open to what God might want to do in the middle of our lives. Thank you for such beautiful leading tonight. I have found myself living in the middle many times. I wonder whether you feel that more when you're 48 going on 49. I don't know. (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think I've had my existential midlife crisis yet. Uh, Campbell, who's one of our elders, just said good. I don't know why you're worried, Campbell. You'll be all right, don't worry. I haven't gone out and bought myself a yacht or a boat or a sports car yet. What do you do when life gets a bit predictable? When you find yourself in the middle? I'd like to reflect for a few moments with you this evening on an encounter that Jesus had with a man who I guess must have been living in the middle. The story is told in three places in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12, Luke chapter 6, and where we're going to read it, Mark chapter 3. So if you have a Bible with you tonight, would you mind turning to that passage for a few moments? My name's Malcolm. I have the privilege of leading the church here. And I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to be here. I know that that's a choice and that pressures of time and life and busyness can mean that you could have made another choice. So thanks for coming. And thank you if you're online for taking the time to connect with us, whether it's tonight or at some other point in the weeks or the months that lie ahead. It's an honor to have you. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Talking about Jesus, it says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. I'd like to reflect for a few moments on this passage and then see whether it might say something to you in your circumstances or me and mine. Let's think about it first of all. Here's a man Some commentators suggest that he might have been a stonemason. If you think about him having a withered hand, that has a huge impact on his livelihood and his income. There's no evidence of that, but the early 2nd and 3rd and 4th century commentators on this story say that that's what he was. But his condition wasn't life-threatening. It was chronic, but not life-threatening. And for the Jewish community of the day, for this man to be made better on the Sabbath day would have been a breaking of the rules. They weren't allowed to make a man like this better on the Sabbath day. You weren't allowed to treat him. You weren't allowed to help him. You weren't allowed to do anything that would uh, be deemed as work. But on this particular Sabbath, which for the Jewish community runs from Friday evening through to Saturday evening, 
He is, as he probably was every single week, in the synagogue. But this week was different. Because Jesus came to synagogue that day, as was his custom, we are told, again and again in the Bible. And he made him well. I wonder, did that man think, when he got up on that Friday morning, God is going to make me well today. <laughs> I don't think he did. I think he probably thought, I'm going to go to synagogue because I go to synagogue every Friday or every Saturday. I go every time we uh, remember Sabbath for Jewish people, it's our Saturdays. But on this day, the man with the withered hand is changed. He's transformed because he has an encounter with the living Jesus. The God who comes into the middle of his life and makes him better, transforms him. But Jesus does something which is profoundly challenging, profoundly troubling. In making this man better, he challenges the religious leaders of his day. He challenges those that have decided that they are the arbiters of truth. They can dictate who does what and when because they're in charge. And when you read this passage and the passage in Matthew 12 and in Luke 6, it is very, very clear that the scribes and the leaders and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people who said they were in charge of Judaism, being Jewish in the time that Jesus was physically on earth, have come to this synagogue because they know that Jesus is going to be there and they've decided they're going to, they're going to, they're going to um, expose him for the fraud that he is. They're going to expose his manipulations and his control and they want to see what he does on the Sabbath because they've heard that he is a bit of a maverick. Just before this passage in Mark's story, uh, we are told that Jesus has an encounter with others in which he says a very profound and important statement. It's in Mark chapter 2. Um, he talks about the Sabbath from verse 23 down to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read it to you so you can hear it. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? And then he tells them a story from the Old Testament. He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence sometimes called the showbread, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave some to, its com to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the scene is set for a showdown between the people that want to prove that Jesus shouldn't be trusted and Jesus who's going to demonstrate to the world that he is God and Lord. And the man with the withered hand is at the center of the story. I'll leave it up to you to read it carefully, but there are a number of things that you will note about it when you read it. The first is this. Jesus' dialogue with the man is also about his encounter with those that have come to question him, to test him. Because when he sees this man with a withered hand, he calls him forward. That requires a decision on the part of the man whose hand is useless. He asks him to step forward in some of the versions. Um, he is commanded to step forward. What would have happened had the man said no? We don't know because he didn't say no. He said yes. So it becomes a spurious question. But he gets this man to, to come to the front of the room for want of a better image for you to bear. And then he begins a dialogue, not with the man. Read the story. How little he speaks to him. but with those that have come to expose Jesus, to argue with him and to fight with him. And their fundamental beef is you shouldn't be breaking the Sabbath. And his beef is you have got it wrong. You set a list of rules and regulations that make it almost impossible for anybody to live. You're crushing ordinary people under your religious expectations and your religious demands and your definitions of what it means to be holy and acceptable and welcomed and allowed into God's presence that you think are protecting the holiness of God are destroying the people of God. 
And then if you read the passage really, really carefully, from verse four, here's what you read. He said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? And they know that it is lawful to do good. They know that Jesus is permitted to be kind and compassionate because there's nowhere in the Bible that says that it is ever lawful to be anything other than kind or compassionate. So they say nothing. When religious people are confronted with Jesus, I don't mean all religious people, I'm a religious man. I don't think it's a negative word. But religious people that are living for tradition, that are trying to make everything the way they want it to be, when they're trying to control a church or control a life or control a family or control a son or control a daughter, when they're confronted with the liberty and the life that Jesus brings, they can often be silent. So Jesus draws them out. He exposes the weakness of their argument he confronts them with the inconsistency of what they were saying. Do you know there were over um, third, there were 39 different headings in the, New Te- in the Old Testament of how the Sabbath was to be observed. 39. I'm not going to go into them all. And you all said, thank goodness for that. But the Jewish teachers that interpreted the law had created hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules to interpret those 39 principles. Not out of disrespect, but because they didn't want to break any of God's commandments. So what they did was they kept adding to them. Well, in case we break the commandment, let's add this. In case we break the commandment, let's add this. And in case we've misunderstood that, let's add this. So it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until the demands that were being placed on Jewish people were inescapably big. They were crushing them, not bringing them life. So for example... If you spat on the ground, it was permissible on the Sabbath. But if you touched it, you were deemed to be making a brick. And therefore, you were breaking the Sabbath. If a hen lay an egg, the hen wasn't breaking the Sabbath. (laughs) But if you picked it up, you were. If a wall fell on a man or a woman, you could take the bricks off to make sure they were alive. But if they were alive, you had to leave them there until the following day. It was only if they were in peril of death that you could help them. None of that in the Old Testament. None of that there. Instead, what they were doing were adding loads and loads of rules and regulations. And here in this story, as innocent as it sounds, there's a huge confrontation taking place. It's a confrontation between the God that brings life and religious constriction and control that brings death. It's a life and death thing. So having exposed their weakness, Jesus then says to them, I'm going to show you who's in control here. Now read the next verse, verse five. It's so important. It's why textual analysis is really important when you're trying to understand the Bible. I don't mean that poshly. I mean just let it say what it says. Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. This man is standing in front of a whole group of people. And Jesus starts an argument with those that think that he shouldn't heal him. And the image that I have in my head is let's take for a moment that there are an imaginary group of scribes and Pharisees standing on the, on the platform here with me this evening. And that over here, standing on his own, rather embarrassed perhaps, is the man with the withered hand. I don't know whether this is right or not, but there's one of two ways that I think Jesus did this. Who knows? We can ask him one day, those of us that know him. He either did this, remember these are the Pharisees, He looked them straight in the eye and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand. Or he looked at the man and he put his back to them and he said, stretch out your hand. But in that one sentence, 
Don't ever allow yourself to miss the importance of it. You'll pick it up in verse 6. Read verse 6 of Mark chapter 3. Right early on, at the very beginning of this remarkable ministry of Jesus, we're told that at this moment, the scribes and the Pharisees left the synagogue and conspired with the rulers, with the Herodians and others, how they might destroy Jesus. By asking that man to reach out his hand, Jesus was signing his own death warrant. Because he was setting himself against a religious structure and a religious system and religious leaders that would rather see people wilt and die than flourish, which is why the story is of a man with a withered hand. The man himself was important to Jesus. Don't allow the, um, the miracle to become a picture of something else before understanding what it is first and foremost. That's bad preaching that does that. This man needed Jesus and Jesus came to meet this man and he told this man to reach out his hand and he was willing to do it at the cost of his own life. He was willing to reach this man in the middle of his withered life and touch his withered hand no matter what the consequences might have been and as a result, the man was restored and Jesus was sure to die but he loved the man that much. That moment is powerful. It's a, it's a moment that says the religious system isn't as powerful as the God that sits at the center of it. If the church that is institutionalized and organized and structured and gathered and hear me with all the grace that I have in my heart, I'm not looking for a fight. But if the church that is institutionalized and is legislated and has worked out everything that Jesus would and wouldn't do stands against Jesus, then Jesus will destroy that institution. He will not be confined by your definitions of him or by mine. He won't be reduced to being our theological puppet. He's not going to be the person that jumps when we say jump and dances when we say dance. He is free. He is the one that created all things. And in this story, he's saying to this man and to these religious leaders, you've got this all wrong. The Sabbath wasn't made, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made just so that he could run through all the hoops and the rules and the regulations that God set. God didn't set the regulations and then think, I better create somebody to obey them. God created people. And in creating people, he set a set of principles in place on how to live and how to be and how to rest and how to work and how to build family and how to relate and how to have sex and how to gather and how to bring up children and how to do all of those things. Not because he was trying to control or manipulate, but because he was trying to bring life. It's the church that makes it all sound so legalistic, not Jesus. And this man on this day is restored. Jesus didn't need to heal him on this Sabbath day. It wasn't a life-threatening condition. He could have left it until Sunday. He could have said, I'll, I'll meet you at nine o'clock at the first century equivalent of Starbucks. But he didn't do it. Because in that moment, he saw that man's need and decided to meet it. What a powerful story. How are our lives withered? There are people sitting here who heard terrible news this week about their situation and inside they can't wait until tomorrow. They need God to touch them tonight. I believe he's able to do that. There are others that, like this withered man, have got into the habit of attending church. His was synagogue. And you came today with no expectation whatsoever that the living God would be here. But what if he wants to touch your withered heart? Withered because of hard work, withered because of sorrow, withered because of disappointment, withered 
because of religious constriction and control, withered because somebody else has told you all your life that this is the way you should behave, withered for a thousand different reasons. But what if Jesus Christ has come here to Dundonald Elam Church to touch your withered life and mine? And he wants to interrupt what we are doing and who we are in order to bring life. That song that you sung as a ministry piece, instead of just coming out of the motions, doing it because we have to, God says, I want to do something in you. I want to minister into the deepest part of your life. I'm always nervous about doing what I'm about to do, but never mind. I don't mean drink water. (laughs) I'm not nervous about that. As you were singing tonight, as we were worshipping earlier on, I don't know the, which song it was, Dry Bones, the Dry Bones one. Here again, thank you, Lily. I began to think about Dundonald Elam Church. I don't actually think we are dry bones, so that's not the road we're going down, folks. Don't panic. This church was founded in 1970. Is that right? Looking at the two... I was going to say the two old fellas, but I better be careful. The two gentlemen that, um, and their families that founded it. I was born in 1970. Well, it sounds a bit weird. I don't mind if it sounds weird. I have a, a growing conviction that God has brought this church and me together for this next season for a reason. And that he knew in 1970 that 2000. And 18 was the year that you'd end up lumbered with me and I would end up blessed by you. And I think that in the midst of the years of ministry and faithfulness and service that you have given as a church family, let me talk to some of you that have been here for a little longer. It's easy to forget why this church was born, why it was birthed, why it came into existence. And you can end up coming because that's what you do. You come on a Sunday and you come on a Sunday night and you come on a Wednesday and, and, and you are committed and passionate. But underneath it, it can end up just feeling like I'm going through the motions of church. What if God is about to bring us into a season where we are going to see more fruit and more life and more freedom and more demonstration of his power than we have ever seen? Don't get too excited. The year of Jubilee was the 49th into the 50th year. We're 49 years this year. We're 50 years next year. Here's what I would like our heartbeat to be next year and as we journey toward that. Not look at everything that God has done and we're just going to reminisce and sit and have a kind of party like this is your life with Malcolm being Eamon Andrews. But that we might look back with thankfulness and then look forward and say, what could the next 50 years look like? What if God wants to do something new? What if in the midst of our life, he wants to come and touch us? And I want to ask something of the folk that are part of our church family because I have grown to love you so deeply. Um, Even if I don't know your name yet. It's very challenging when you have 40 or 50 new people coming every week, don't you think? Because you can see people on the other side of the door saying goodbye and you know as well as they do that they don't know the name of the person whose hand they're shaking either. And they're all trying to work it out. So we have to work something out about how we get to know each other here. Because there are so many new folk in our church family. It is fantastic. I think we should all, for the next six weeks, wear a badge. (laughs) You think I'm being non-serious? I'm being really serious. You can have whatever kind of badge you like. But I think there should be a bit of paper at the door and we should stick a name on our lapel or somewhere appropriate so that everybody knows who they're talking to. And you watch how quickly we get to know each other in six or seven weeks. Just don't play silly games. (laughs) Don't stick your badge on somebody else and then make me look like a real numpty. I honestly think that we need to do something about getting to know each other more deeply. The table for eight is a way of doing that. Spending time together is a way of doing that. There are so many folk in our church family who weren't here 50 years ago, who weren't here a year ago, let alone 50 years ago. 
And we've got some decisions to make as a church family about the kind of church that God is calling us to be as we move forward. And here's the kind of church I think God wants us to be and we have to decide whether we're going to be. It's the kind of church where people with withered hands come and Jesus stands in the middle and says, stretch out your hand and their lives are transformed. I think he wants us to be the kind of church where people with withered dreams come and he says, it's not over yet. Let me bring your dream to life again. I think he wants us to be the kind of church that isn't going to trip itself up over petty rules and petty regulations and allow itself to stand as judge, jury and executioner for broken people, but instead is going to look for them and find a way of getting them to Jesus so that he can set them free. That's an exciting church to be part of. But I think it will make us an unpopular church with others who will look for ways of telling us that we're getting it wrong, that we're not doing it right, that we haven't got the right balance. But in the end, I want to ask you as a church family to make a decision with me that all we want is all that Jesus has for us. And that we're not going to be caught up in arguments and discussions and debates that don't matter. Over the last few months, I have watched with an increasing sense of anticipation at some of the people that are leading and ministering in our church family from this platform and in other contexts. I think God is raising up people who will lead worship around the world here. I think he's raising up pastors and preachers and teachers and evangelists I think he's raising up prophets. I think he's placing dreams and visions and longings in the hearts of men and women, young and old, that could change the continent of Europe and stretch out across the world. And that somehow he's asking us to be an incubator of faith. A community that sees that God can do anything with people. So you may not have a physical withered hand, church family. But what's the dream in your heart? Maybe one day I'll have coffee with you, Derek, and with you, Campbell, and you can tell me who, what pastor told you to plant this, asked you to plant this church? Sandy Wilson. Maybe one day you can tell me what he said. What did he ask you to do? Did he say, um, plant a church, and when you get to about 400, stop? Or did he say, just plant the church and let God do the rest? Well, I, I, want, I genuinely want to know what he said. Because I think you can, we're in a, a place where we can find ourselves quite settled. We have enough folk to be a really healthy congregation. We can get to know each other. We can enjoy our gatherings. We can enjoy each other. It can be great fun. But what if God says, but this is only the beginning of what I want to do. And I have more to do in your heart and in your life. I have a sense that God wants to breathe his spirit. This is the nervous bit. Across the church in Ireland. Across the church in Northern Ireland. My geography and my political understanding is not confused. I recognize that this island has two nations on it. And that we're in one. And there is another nation on the other side of the invisible border. I'm going to make a political statement now. And I don't want you all to shout at me. But tonight or tomorrow, I'm going to write a blog about the fact that I think it is deeply unhelpful when the Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland makes threats about border patrols and armies that re 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 resuscitates and reminds people of a decade and of a season in our lives that none of us want to go back to. And I am tired of the people of Northern Ireland, of whom I am one, being made into a political football by the European Union, by the GB government, and by the Republic of Ireland. And some of them listened to this preaching. And my heartfelt cry as a pastor, a preacher, a theologian, and a peacemaker is, stop it. Stop playing political football with this nation and with us as a people and turning us into something that can score a political point. The people on this island, in this province, matter too much. And I think God wants to breathe something across Northern Ireland that will revive and renew and bring life to his church in a more powerful way than any of us can begin to understand. 
And I think that as God looks out at his church in Northern Ireland, there may be times at which he says, it looks withered. It looks a bit dry and a bit stuck in the middle. I am not going to die for a stuck in the middle church. I am not giving my life to a stuck in the middle religious institution. I refuse to do that. My life is too precious to me to do that. I want to give my life to something that will last. If I was nervous about what I just said, I'm even more nervous about what I'm about to say. (laughs) Partly because a man whom I deeply love and respect is here, and I won't do this very often because he will kill me, but one of the leaders of the movement that we are part of now worships in our church, Pastor McComb, and I'm grateful to have you and Ruth here. But I look at the movement that we are part of and I think, God, don't let us wither. Don't let us die in the vine. Don't let us end up being this community of people that struggles from week to week and never encounters the power of God and never experiences the presence of God and never hears the word of God and never moves in the freedom of God. I don't want to be part of a denomination that is withering. I want to be part of something that is bringing life. And I think God wants to visit the denomination that I am part of and breathe new life upon it. Most of you don't care about denominationalism. Thank God for that. And yet in the midst of all of this, he takes wineskins and breathes life into them. And I know that the leadership of the movement that we have now would have the same prayer as I do. They, like me, would long for a day of greater fruit and greater life and greater freedom and greater joy and greater depth. It's not a criticism of Elam in any way. What I'm saying is I think God wants to do something new and fresh and stronger and better and greater and more life-giving in this family of churches. Most of you don't care about that. And I don't mean that facetiously. I accept that. But what you do care about is your life and your situation and your family. And some of you are visiting here at Dundonald tonight and you've come withered. Withered relationships with God. Withered families. Withered hearts. withered dreams but God by his grace wants to interrupt your life in the middle of it and bring to life again something that once was there do you know who will do it? the person that did it in the story Jesus our Sunday night gatherings are aimed at those who are not yet Christians And you might have heard me speaking for the last 15 minutes or go and think, that doesn't really apply to me because I'm not a Christian. It applies to you. Because when you become a Christian, God wants to plant you into a community that is vibrant and life-giving. One that sees what's possible in you and releases it. It wasn't the synagogue that brought life to the man with the withered hand. It wasn't all of his observations of ritual and ceremony. It was Jesus. Going to church is not your salvation. One of the great differences between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church is the Protestant Church doesn't believe that the church can save you. Only Jesus can save you. And he is present tonight to rescue you to touch a withered life, to touch a withered heart. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care what you've faced. And he's willing to do it so much that this story isn't just about him touching somebody with a withered hand. It's about him signing his own death warrant. Because this was the moment that Jesus' death was nailed. 
because they'd rather he die than offer life to people. And Jesus would rather die so that you could live than live and let you stay dead. And my Jesus, the Jesus of this story, the Jesus of scripture, died so that you might have life and rose again so that that life might be eternal. To demonstrate that his power and his victory and his presence and his promises are forever true. And it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what your background is online or in the room, it doesn't matter what tradition you're from, it doesn't matter what denominational um, bias you have, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. I don't care where you've been. God is able to set you free tonight. He's able to reach into your heart and bring life and hope. And he's able to physically restore you. He's able to spiritually give you new life. He's able to save you. He's able to set you free. He's able to give you hope again. He's able to help you dream again. He's able to uh, bring comfort in the midst of your sorrow. He's the God that touches withered lives. So what if this evening... Jesus says to you, stand up. And then he says, stretch out your hand. What if this is the moment when you need to decide what you're going to do with the rest of your life? Don't choose religious institutions. Choose Jesus. Choose the forgiveness that he offers, the life that he gives, the freedom that he brings, the hope that he brings. God exists, Christians believe, eternally in three different expressions. I'm not going into all the details because it's quite complicated. They're called the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the one who creates all things The Son is his powerful word and the Spirit is his breath and his presence. And when Jesus died and went to heaven, he said to his disciples just before he was sent to heaven, when I go, I'm going to ask my Father to send someone to you to help you. And he will be exactly the same as me in character and in in attitude and in outlook. And he will convict you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And he will give fruit in your life that you might know that he's present. And he'll give you gifts and abilities to serve me. And he'll give you a sense of assurance that you belong to me. And he'll hold you. And he'll, when you do things wrong, he'll challenge you. When you do things right, he'll celebrate. When the world attacks you, he'll defend you. He'll do all the things that Jesus does in this story with the man with the withered hand. That's the Holy Spirit. You can't see him. He's a person without a face. But in our church, we believe that he's present. So let me ask you a question. What might he want to do in your life tonight? What might he want to say? Might he want to bring life to you? Might he want to set you free? Might he want to bring healing to your body? Restoration to your soul? energy to your heart as you find yourself stuck in the middle might God want to give you a new chapter I think he's giving our church one and I think he might want to give each of us one too but that depends on what you decide let's pray together Thank you, Lord, that you are present here with your power and across the internet. Speak into our lives, I pray. And have your way in these moments.
I wonder if the worship band could come and join me, please, while you remain in prayer. I really believe this is a holy moment. And I want you, I know you're doing it, so thank you, but at home and here, to take it very seriously. I'll often ask people to make a response to God and I'm going to ask you to make one this evening. Sometimes I'll ask people to raise their hands in response. I'm not going to ask you to do that tonight. Sometimes I'll ask people to come forward. Not very often, but I do sometimes. I'm not going to do that this evening either. But in a moment, I'm going to ask those of you that feel that you need to make a response or that it's important that you make a response to stand. I know it's a public thing. And I have two questions for you. I'll give you an opportunity to respond after each one. My first question is to those of you that are already followers of Jesus Christ. And you don't want your life to wither. Might be you've been involved in ministry and you felt as if that's withered. Tonight you're saying, I don't want my story to end withered. Might be that spiritually you've been withering and you're saying to God, I don't want to wither. It might be that you need his physical touch. Nobody else knows, but you need God to touch you. I think there'll be a a big enough response in a moment that you will be able to be anonymous in that response, which is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're worried about someone else that you know and love. Maybe you physically are unwell. Maybe emotionally or psychologically you need God to touch you. Maybe your family needs touch. Maybe your marriage needs touch. Maybe financially you're withering. Whatever it might be, if you have a sense that the word wither speaks into something that you're facing tonight, And you need to say to God, I don't want to go on withering. I want to step into life. I want to see this situation changed. I want the second half of my story to be more life-giving and more hopeful than the first half. And I don't care who you are or where you're from. There are no judgments on this. But if you're saying to God, touch my life, touch me, touch my family, Touch the person that I'm burdened for, for whatever reason. Then I'm only asking you once, but would you please stand now? Keep your eyes closed so that people can have this as a private moment. What an amazing thing to watch, witness so many of you. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your courage. Remarkable.
think the Lord wants me to wait because there's someone that's battling this. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Lord, for your directness. <laughs> and my second question is to those of you that perhaps here or online, but I can't see you online. Have wandered away from the Lord, have never known him. And a girl has become more important or a boy has become more important or money or career or family or something has become more important. And the thing that you thought was going to bring you life is actually not bringing you life. You're no happier. And you've realized that actually you're withering or you've never committed your life to Jesus because you've been worried about the rules and the regulations and the stuff that people place on you. I'm asking you tonight to come to Jesus. The one that brings life and forgiveness and grace and can give you a fresh start and wipe the slate clean and doesn't care because he's able about what you've done because he's able to take it and deal with it. He cares about it enough to have dealt with it. So if you're someone who's wandered from the Lord or has never known him and tonight you want to say, I am coming back or I am coming for the first time. I've asked you second so you don't feel embarrassed and everybody's eyes are closed. If you want to step into relationship with God tonight, then would you please stand? If you want to step back into relationship with God, would you stand? No one's looking. Thank you so much, sir. Hallelujah. I know this is a, a public moment. It's also a private moment. Don't put it off. Father, I look around this room this evening and I see 50 or 60 people that have responded to you. I believe that you can move in each of our situations. I'm standing with them. We want the second half of our lives to be different. We want the next chapter to be more abundant, not selfishly, but we want to move in your power. We're asking you to release a fresh sense of your presence and your anointing on your people. From the back of the hall to the front where dreams have been withered and died, Lord, let them be brought to life again. Where folk have given up, let life be poured into them. For those that have been part of our church for 50 years and are standing tonight in your presence saying, let the next 50 years be better than the last 50. Thank you for their faith. For those that are returning, for those that are repenting, for those that are reaching out, come in sovereign grace and power and help each of us to receive a fresh touch from Jesus Christ. For those responding at home, Lord, let your grace and mercy reach into their hearts and souls. Thank you for your power. Release a new sense of expectancy and faith in our hearts that will rise to what is possible. Now, Lord, we listen for your Spirit's voice to speak into individual hearts, to birth dreams, to confirm callings. to strip back the stuff that doesn't matter. Let this be a moment where marriages are strengthened, where families are strengthened, where careers are directed, where business decisions are fashioned. We're not just talking about what happens in the fourfold gifts. We're talking about businesswomen and men and doctors and lawyers and social workers and technicians and politicians and engineers for everyone we have a place and a calling in your family for grandmothers and grandfathers and children and aunts and uncles moved by your spirit amongst us fill your people with your spirit 
Renew your people with the presence of God. Sweep away disappointment and old heartbreaks and bring new life. Help us to lay those things that have got in the way at the foot of the cross and come in sovereign power and meet with us as we worship you. Can I invite the rest of you, if you're willing and able to stand, please, whilst your eyes are closed, so that we can together lift up our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's worship him together.